Well, tēnā katoa, everyone, and welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey, and we've got co-host Peter Bale on here from Auckland. Wonderful to see you, Peter. Bernard, it's excellent to see you too. Are you down at the Beehive again? Or yes, I've had to run into the Beehive Parliamentary uh, Theatrette because it is um, a day when I've had a few tech problems, but we'll get there. And I, I really uh, like this Edward Edward Murrow um, microphone uh, angle you've got going on there. That looks yeah. very stylish. <laughs> I'm going to have to I'm going to have to bring mine over and make it more oh, visible. Oh, that's good. Except mine looks no, like no, a gigantic um, sex toy. No, but. no, we're, we're having to do some jury rigging today, but we're we're there, and um, it's really great to see you because we've got something special this week. We've well, got we've got a couple of good yeah. special things really. We've got David Tong from Greenpeace coming on from Sharm El Sheikh. In Egypt to talk to us about COP27. And I got him on mainly because he bollocked me for, for my uh, uh, spin off piece last week being too gloomy. I, I now feel entirely validated with that gloom. And probably around the bottom of the hour, we've got um, an old colleague of mine, Ben Weeder, coming in. He's, the, he's an investigative journalist in Washington for um, the McClatchy Group, which is essentially the Miami Herald, if you think about it that way. And I, I'm really, he's a very, very thoughtful man. And I think he'll give us some really interesting perspective on the midterms. Yeah, it has been a heck of a week internationally, and um, I'm going to bring in David, if, if that if that makes sense. Uh, sure, because we've also got to talk about um, Adrian Orr. You, I, I was listening to the wireless the other day, and I didn't I didn't hear, hear hear the introduction, and I thought, God, that person sounds incredibly sensible about Adrian Orr, and of course it was you. Yeah, that's right. Been a heck of a week here too, because um, for the first time, we've got the opposition breaking the consensus about um, not really criticizing the Reserve Bank, leaving them to be independent. Uh, the opposition came out and essentially said, we um, don't want Adrian Orr to be reappointed. For yeah, it's very dangerous, I thought. I thought it was a very dangerous intervention. We can talk about, about how the central bank became independent and where that, where that tendency came from, which I, I still recall was Gordon Brown when he made the... Uh, the, the Bank of England independent, it really set off a wave of independency for independence for uh, central banks, particularly in Commonwealth countries. Yeah, we actually, we actually try and credit for being the first, but um, uh, it certainly is a big deal for, for us. Shall we pull in uh, David now? Does yes, please. Sense? Yeah, and we've got some good skateboarding dog stories, and we've got the meltdown at Twitter where Elon Musk is talking about bankruptcy. That is an extraordinary, and it's only just mm. breaking really that story in the last um, few hours. Yeah, well, you so just, you, that's, that's what, you, that's that's what that people come to the hoon for. Hi, David, how are you? Good morning or good afternoon. I'm good. Yeah, nice thanks so much. That. Thanks so much for coming in. Now, um, David, I think you probably know Bernard Hickey, uh, and you're being, you, you've got our, uh, you're, you're being recorded in front of a live audience uh, on Zoom, and then Bernard recirculates this on, on um, Saturday morning to his, uh, um, to his uh, subscribers to the Kaka. Now you're in Sharm El Sheikh, I think, right? Yes, I am. I'm here in Napka in Sharm El Sheikh. Now you're from Greenpeace, but you've also you're, you're the you're the head of this um, oil and well not anti-oil, but an oil substitute kind of um, protest group, right, or campaign group. Uh, I'm the global industry campaign manager for Oil Change International, so yeah. not the so, head, but we'll run one of our teams. Yeah. Would you, would you tell us a little bit about what, what your role at Sharm El Sheikh is at the COP27? Absolutely. At Oil Change, we are here launching a number of reports, both on public finance and on 
tracking the oil and gas industry's expansion plans. Mm-hmm. We're also supporting a delegation of around 15 frontline African activists against oil and gas to be here at the conference. So providing some logistic support and so on. Interesting. Now, one of the reasons I got you on is that you've, you very kindly or slightly unkindly, I thought, bollocked me uh, for being somewhat negative um, in my spin-off piece last week about the forecast for, for COP27. Now, um, since we spoke, and I, and I do appreciate your comments, I feel entirely validated by that. How are you? How are you feeling? You know, you've, got, you've been there nearly a week, or at least it's it's we're getting to the end of uh, COP 27's first of two weeks. What what progress are you seeing, or or what should people expect? Because I think one of your points was don't expect huge progress, but progress may be incremental and hard to see. Yeah, we're not expecting huge progress at this COP. Uh, there are a few areas where there are likely to be significant steps forward. Mm -hmm. One is around loss and damage. Mm. New Zealand made an announcement of redirecting 20 million of adaptation funding to loss and damage. So compensating people where adaptation fails. Uh, What's really under negotiation though, is a formal mechanism to provide for this finance. And there's a good chance that some major step forward will happen this year. I, I anticipate there won't be actual money on the table funding a mechanism this year but that we'll get quite close to having that in place for next year and, and one of the important Progress things on about the it, david i think sorry sorry david i'll come back to you on mitigation but just on on loss and damage because it's so it's such an interesting idea and we'll be hearing a lot more of it it's not about restitution for the damage already done is it it's it's for compensating uh countries such as pakistan or tuvalu when the damage occurs now right because there's there's a, there seems to be huge objection from the big countries, from the big polluters, of course, to um, allow it to become some form of historic restitution. Yeah, this was a very difficult compromise in Paris. I think some of the global South countries, especially the least developed and small island states, would like a full compensatory mm. mechanism. But for the US and other wealthy countries that have contributed heavily to the crisis uh that that's a red line they're not going to accept is, is that because of slavery that the next stop would be slavery is there a is there a linkage there know. do you think <laughs> i think i think the simplicity is that if there were a compensatory mechanism they'd already be on the hook for trillions of dollars mm, of compensation mm. whether it would open the door for other kinds of compensation yeah. I, I don't know it's not as clear I'm sorry, and I interrupted you when you were talking about mitigate about the next. So we've got loss and damage one phase. Now, where are we with mitigation? Do you think? And maybe explain what mitigation yeah. is as opposed to adaptation, please. Mitigation is trying to limit our climate pollution, limit our greenhouse gas emissions, mm-hmm. to lower the total temperature rise and lower the rate of change. Adaptation is dealing with the changes that are already happening. We have to do both. We can't mm-hmm. stop some changes. But if you just focus on adaptation, it's like trying to run faster and faster on a treadmill that's just mm. keeping on speeding up. Mm. You'll eventually fall off unless you stop the treadmill. Um, so the mitigation work program is progressing. We don't have clear, a clear decision text yet, but I wouldn't expect to at this stage. Uh, what's interesting, what I'm really focused on a lot is <clears throat> there is a real chance that there'll be a direct mention of fossil fuels in mm-hmm. the top decision text. That could be good, or it could be really, really bad. Last year, for the first time, um, 
the elephant in the room got mentioned in the decision. So the, the formal decision. And this is a big, this is a big smelly got, elephant covered in oil, is it? Yes, it is. Um, mm. Though some countries were, would like you to believe that the elephant is very clean and the elephant is cleaner than anybody else's. It's been the elephant in the room in these negotiations. And um, finally, in Glasgow, there was a mention of unabated coal in the decision mm. text. So we're hoping to build on that. Uh, the discussion in the corridors has been much more around oil and gas and coal than in previous COPs, looking at both the demand and the supply side. But we aren't there yet. There is also a risk that there'll be a mention of gas as a bridge fuel, mm. which is a really dishonest and problematic timing. Just two weeks ago, the International Energy Agency published its annual World Energy Outlook and said that the golden age of gas is over and that countries like New Zealand that have a higher share of renewables have been spared the worst of the energy crisis. Investing more in gas will just make ourselves more vulnerable to the energy crisis. Mm. But from the Egyptian presidency, there's a bit of a push yeah, to I can promote imagine. gas. Well, also, it's, yeah. and, and it just to, not not to make it all about New Zealand, but interestingly, National, National of course, have come out and said that they would want to um, uh, suspend the government's moratorium on uh, offshore oil and gas exploration. I mean, presumably, you don't buy this idea of gas as an interim, as an interim uh, bridging mechanism between, um, you know, oil and and uh, and and less polluting, less. Less, less impactful gas? No, I don't. Uh, the IEA said that there's no room for new oil, gas and coal exploration for 1.5. Mm -hmm. Our analysis at Oil Change shows that burning just the fossil fuels in fields and mines operating now would take us beyond two degrees. Yeah. So opening up new fields is, is just going to risk stranding assets and mm -hmm. it won't help with the immediate energy crisis no, there's an average of nine years from exploration to <coughs> going online we gamble opening up new gas is gambling on high gas prices in mm. 2030 which seems like a bad bet david um could you give us a sense of how this cop is different from others in in the uh, the background geopolitically being so much more volatile, not so much uh, conversation between the United States and China, and whether that's changed the tone or or the likely progress in in, in the conference. This COP is interesting. It's coming in the context of a global energy crisis, a global everyone's struggling to pay our bills, inflation's high worldwide. Mm -hmm. There are geopolitical headwinds. Um, it's remarkable that there's a Ukrainian pavilion and a Russian office in the same yeah. conference, though the Russians are keeping their heads down. <laughs> um, today, President Biden arrives. I anticipate that there's probably bilaterals organized today between bilateral, sorry, between Biden and the Chinese. I, I don't know. But that, that is something with been less dialogue, as you say, than in recent years. The real difference for this COP compared to the last seven or so I've been to is the situation of the host country. This isn't the first host country mm. I've been to where, where it's not a democracy, but it is the first COP I've been to where state surveillance and state security 
has such a palpable presence How interesting. and where the domestic where the domestic human rights environment is overshadowing the negotiations so much and david um you know there's world leaders turning up there but not new zealand's um leader who declared uh climate change her generation's nuclear-free moment and declared a climate emergency in Parliament two years ago. Uh, what did, what does that matter? New Zealand has not often sent prime ministers to the climate talks, and not every country does. The Leaders' Day events are a symbolic mm -hmm. part of the COP. In, in Copenhagen, for example, part of the reason for the failure is said to be that at the last minute, all the presidents showed up and their egos got in the way. Mm. But under the Paris process, so much is bottom up. And the idea is that there's an incentive for leaders to show and make new announcements. There's been a disappointing lack of new announcements so mm. far at this cult. But I think it is unfortunate that coming through near the end of her second term, Prime Minister Ardern, still, Jacinda, still has not been to a cult. I think it would be an eye-opening experience to engage with the, the scale of international climate politics and see how often the international discourse and other countries' policy discourse is miles away from where New Zealand is at. Interesting. Do, do you think, David, did, did we get a false sense of hope out of Paris? I mean, I, I remember being a little bit involved with uh, COP25 and the, and that and talking to some of the organisers about that extremely clever idea of the nationally defined contributions, which allowed countries to essentially set their own level of maximum uh, ma maximum output. But are we are we seeing through this that that was that was a bit of a furphy that it was a bit of a a mythical number that that people just came up with their numbers, but there was no enforcement mechanism, uh, and that we were perhaps in a different age about getting international agreement on things. Or am I being too negative again? I think Paris, <laughs> compared to what we need to confront this crisis, yeah. Paris was always a failure. Compared to what was diplomatically possible, Paris was a remarkable breakthrough. Mm. I mean, if you'd told me in 2013 that in 2014 there'd be a bilateral climate agreement between the US and China, I'd have said you were dreaming. If you told me that you told me that Trump would be elected, I'd say you were dreaming. But if you told me that if Trump would be elected and US emissions would keep falling for three <laughs> years, I'd never have believed that. Mm. And the IEA last year projected for the first time that implementing just the promises made would bring us below two degrees. The ambition gap is closing. The implementation gap, the finance gap, the, the justice gap, they're all still there. But the Paris process so far has brought us a lot closer to 1.5 mm -hmm. than the projections of 3.5 we were at seven years ago. We're not yeah, there if, yet, but we're making progress. If, if you're think, thinking optimistically as well, David, I, I noticed that The Economist this week has quite a good leader on the idea that uh, economic growth is being disconnected from fossil fuel consumption, that, that it's no longer kind of directly correlated. I mean, that's obviously in, a, in mature countries, but I think it said 34 countries are achieving um, a level of economic growth without their carbon footprint increasing at, at the same time, the way it has, you know, really since the Industrial Revolution, I guess. Yes, and that's a really hopeful thing. 
if we can decouple economic growth and in particular growth and standards of living and growth in energy access mm. across sub-Saharan Africa from growth in carbon dioxide emissions, that's, that's the trick. That, that's what we need to solve this crisis. Yeah, David, we've we've talked on this show partly because you, you may remember Business Desk did a did a very interesting series of stories recently with uh, Adrian Macy and I think David Frame, I think his name is, looking at the, the, you know questioning really the principle of New Zealand's goals to get to net zero and the the dependency on overseas carbon credits. What, what's what's your feeling about about those and the and this this risk that the market really may not exist and also whether there will be political support for as much as $30 billion going overseas from New Zealand to, to purchase credits elsewhere? New Zealand's <laughs> in a really unusual place because we've allowed our emissions to grow so much mm. since 2005 and since 1990. This means that in order to bend the curve and but also to meet our, our Paris targets, we need to buy overseas credits. It's not, the prevailing wisdom says, it's not possible to meet those targets domestically. Mm -hmm. And that's especially with the only 10% reduction in methane. That would mean that reducing the rest of the economy would have to commensurately have a much, much larger reduction to domestically meet our targets, which would be mm -hmm. very, very hard. I wondered, um, the opposition in the last two to three weeks has really started to back away from many of the commitments that are inherent in the Carbon Zero Act. Uh, we've seen the opposition say that they would, um, for example, repeal Hewaka Ekanoa as the government's proposed it. Uh, we've seen farmers just in the last couple of days pull together and basically uh, uh, completely reject um, involvement in Hewaka Ekanoa. Uh, what's your feeling about how um, bipartisan, consensual, our overall climate action is at the moment. It seems uh, uh, the worst it's been for quite some time. It's, the tension's much more obvious than it has been for some mm. time. Uh, National signed the Paris Agreement, National submitted our first Paris target, but doesn't seem to be supportive of most policies to get us there. Uh, in, it's important to remember when they agreed with the Zero Carbon Act, they did produce a number of supplementary order papers calling for amendments to it. And even in that week, as they voted in favour of the Zero Carbon Act, of the, climate, of, the, of the amendment agency of the Climate Commission, they were playing politics with it. Mm. They were filing amendments to add text to play to their supporters. And nationals national members of parliament privately admitted to me that that text was already in the document, that they weren't actually changing anything substantive, but they were trying to show their prioritization of agricultural interests and apparent opposition to forestry. And so what so it was all theatrical. Is, it, was, it was theatrical and the purpose of the Zero Carbon Act in theory is to gain consensus on the pathway on our emissions budgets for the next 15 years, then out to 2050, and to 
allow the political debates to be how we do it. So you naturally expect national to be more focused on the emissions trading scheme, mm. labor to want more regulatory measures that, that reflects their different political ideologies. The problem is that national is also playing politics with the targets themselves and is not identifying any alternative policies for the policies it plans to spread. And the other thing I've been noticing in the last couple of weeks, David, I mean, it's sort of not surprising given the local government election results from a month or so ago, but we're now starting to see the mayors and the councillors at local level starting to unwind various measures put in place in the last couple of years to try to encourage mode shift, for example. And um, the latest is... Uh, you, you might not have heard of this because you're probably busy in Sharm el-Sheikh, but in Rotorua, the new mayor, Tanya Tapsell, who's quite a rising star within the National Party, uh, uh, has just ripped up a big chunk of a new bike path that went through the middle of what? Rotorua and has replaced it with 29 car parks. Oh, that's after a very good gesture, isn't it? Jesus. Yeah, after complaints from the local... Um, uh, shopkeepers that you know there was nowhere to park for uh, their their uh, their people and that no one used the cycleway and in Auckland of course uh, Mayor Wayne Brown has um, uh, aged uh, 69 from memory is, 72 um, I think you're fine yeah, so, ah, yeah. uh, has just announced that um He's looking for budget cuts and is not interested at all in the idea of congestion charges in Auckland. Um, what, what do you think of this uh, apparent backtracking that now seems to be going on at various levels of government in New Zealand after, you know, a reasonably um, positive push? Yeah, it's concerning. And I think one thing that's particularly concerning from the local government elections is <laughs> this rise of an almost American-style alt-right populism, mm. where things as simple as bike lanes or buses are being turned into a culture war, not a simple bit of urban planning. It, it shouldn't be a culture war thing to get some people off the road so that the people who need to drive for personal mobility or for work or whatever can get around more easily. It makes it easier for everyone. But yeah, no, yeah. Sharm el-Sheikh has the world's strangest bike lanes. Yeah, <laughs> David, we have a couple of questions from, from the audience, which is terrific. If you would answer them briefly, if you wouldn't mind. Kathleen Lorddale asks, why hasn't the government put in place a local uh, emissions trading initiative? Isn't that negligence? <clears throat> so... New Zealand has a domestic emissions trading scheme uh, that doesn't cover agriculture. So Hilbok Ekanoa is trying to cover agriculture. There are big problems with our ETS. One big problem is how much free allocations are being made to major polluters. We're going to give free allocations mm -hmm. beyond 2050. What we haven't established is bilateral or multilateral links with other countries for our emissions trading scheme. I know there have been discussions with Europe going back five, seven years on possible linkages between our ETS and the EU ETS. That would allow private trading within between New Zealand and overseas. There are worries about that because, and there are worries about our strategy of using overseas credits in general, because 
there yeah. are no strong mechanisms to protect human rights and indigenous people's rights internationally. So New Zealand stands at risk of meeting our Paris target by buying credits from driving people, indigenous people off their lands in the Amazon, for example. We don't yeah. want that. Yeah. Let me, let me combine two questions, Pat, from, sorry, Bernard, let me combine two questions from the audience, one from uh, Brett Tamahori and from Pat Clark. <clears throat> How far are we behind others? And what happens if we become identified as that polluting country as opposed to that green country? We, we're not as green as we like to think we are. We're in, we are ahead in some ways of some other wealthy countries, particularly Australia, for example, on our supply side policies. We have benefits in our high mix of renewable electricity, but we have relatively very high per person emissions largely driven by our huge agricultural sector. And that leads us to a position of risk. We're seeing proposals developing at the European Union level for carbon border tax adjustments, for example. And it is possible that that could end up leaving New Zealand goods in a future, uh, especially given the EU's history of agricultural protectionism. They have an incentive to protect their own farmers, even if that's not necessarily the best for the climate. And we face a real backlash if we are mm. perceived as backsliding. We're an associate member of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which is the diplomatic alliance launched last year in Glasgow of countries that have committed in part or in full to close new oil and gas exploration. Mm -hmm. If we were to leave that, we would see the Danes, Costa Rica, the other members of that alliance. They would not be happy with us and they would be criticizing us for leaving that alliance. Also, I mean, Vanuatu, Tuvalu both endorsed the fossil fuel non-proliferation mm. treaty over the last few months and Tuvalu just this week. Our diplomatic relations with our Pacific neighbors, if we're seen to backslide, would not go well. David, just uh, one final one for me. I'm here in parliament in the bells of parliament always looking for ways to put politicians on the spot. And uh, um, I'm always, uh, unfortunately, sideswiped by big new policy announcements that I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a good idea or not. And one thing that struck me in the announcements about our um, contribution to uh, Paris was this $1.7 billion foreign spending uh, plan, very vaguely announced, uh, essentially to organize, um, help Pacific Islands and other places um, do our work for us. Um, how, how do I, you know, really get to the bottom of that and make sure that, uh, you know, we're not just um, getting other poorer people to do our work for us? Yeah, there are two really important concepts here. One is international carbon trading or internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. The other is climate finance. And it is very important that New Zealand supports our Pacifica neighbours through the transition and with adaptation. We agreed we would do that in Paris. We agreed we'd do that in the convention. We agreed we'd do that in the Kyoto Protocol. And it's our responsibility as a wealthy, high-emitting nation to help those who can't. Uh, however, that is not a substitute for reducing our emissions, and it is not 
a it is not in itself a pathway to driving mitigation where we are trying through two articles in the Paris Agreement 6.2 and 6.4 to claim transferred mitigation outcomes the question is what safeguards are in place are those mitigation cuts are those emissions cuts actually new and additional or are they things that would have happened anyway that we are putting money towards and double counting to, to our credit i would say new zealand's diplomats in the paris rulebook process since 2016 have tried really hard to prevent things like double counting there's a lot i criticize us on in our position on carbon mm -hmm. markets but it's good that we're opposing double counting. On the other hand, the fact that it took until mm -hmm. Glasgow <clears throat> to get guidelines in the rule book for carbon trading, and that for six years there was a debate about allowing double counting and that double entry bookkeeping was was a challenge in the, these negotiations. Uh, shows just how risky the carbon trading internationally is. David, thank you so much for coming in on this so early. Uh, in Shamal shape. We're going to flip to my friend Ben Weeder in the United States now to talk about the midterms. We, we, Bernard and I may well ask you to come in again if, if you don't mind. That was such a sober, thoughtful and intelligent perspective. Thank you. And please be careful with those uh, Egyptian security people. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Uh, Peter, we have another guest from far away uh, talking about um, big things that we should care about. Tell us about, t t t tell us about our new guest. Yeah, so Ben is an old colleague of mine from the Centre of Public Integrity, but he now works at McClatchy. Hi, Ben. It's very good to see you there. It's you too, Peter. Yeah, now McClatchy is probably best known to, to us as the publisher of the Miami Herald. And Ben is a fabulous investigative journalist and data journalist. So what you get from Ben is detailed thought and intelligence. It's not just some kind of um, broad sweeping claims. Now, Ben, thanks so much for coming. This is Bernard Hickey, you can see, and you've got 85 people watching us rec record this live, and then it goes out tomorrow to about 1,500 subscribers of uh, Bernard's podcast, Bernard's uh, Substack. Kia ora, uh, Ben. Great Excellent. to see you here. I'm talking to you from the bowels of New Zealand's parliament. <laughs> it's a lovely place. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> talking to my, my house in Auckland. So, Ben, you know, the, the, this, these midterms have been, uh, you know, everybody here is uh, engage with them. We've, you know, they're very, very big news here as well, which you might might surprise you a little. Um, there's a number of seats still to come, and how? What we should be? What what seats should we be looking at? And how do you see at the moment the balance of power going in well, the Congress? I think, yeah, I think you know. So so the you know the the the, the, the you have two chambers, obviously the, the House of Representatives, the the Senate. Um, and right now, um, there's a strong scenario that, you know, there's, there's a strong possibility that the Senate will be at the very least 50-50 uh, and the, the tie break goes to the vice president, which is the way the system is set up in the US. Um, and so uh, effectively Democrats would control the chamber in that scenario. Uh, the House appears to be out of reach most likely for Democrats, mm -hmm. it's, it's possible. Uh, the most likely scenario now is a very slim majority for Republicans, which would be a change. Um, yeah. Right now, heading into the election, Democrats controlled both chambers. Uh, and it's a meaningful change. If, if Republicans control at least one of the chambers, um, that obviously throws a pretty big wrench in, in the ability of Joe Biden, the president, to be able to really get anything major in his agenda passed. Yeah. Um, 
If does, does, it, does it make it even more important, Ben, that he got things like the Climate Act or the, the uh, Combating Inflation Act through early? I mean, it's important that, you know, basically at this point, anything he would want from his agenda, he would, he would have had to already take care of. And, and so what that means, for example, is, you know, there was talk of, of trying to uh, codify um, abortion protection of some sort. Uh, at the federal level in the U.S. government, uh, it fell up. Sh it fell short before the elections, um, and so if Republicans control at least one of the chambers, um, you know the likelihood of that coming coming to pass is 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 basically nil. So um, you know that that that's one of the significant things that would change um, with Republicans taking control of at least one one chamber. And if they can have control of both, um, you know at the very least you 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 know. Um, Biden would, would have the power to veto things, but mm -hmm. um, at the at the same time, I mean, there'd be you know there'd be the possibility for a lot more legislation, and and they'd have a lot more power, and and potentially be able to to push things through, even in sort of a compromise fashion. Um, they, they'd have a lot more uh, leverage. So it's a pretty significant difference. Even even Democrats retaining one chamber would be significant, uh, particularly since you know. Is, is there any and, particular advantage? So, so, so just to be clear, it's, yeah. it's it, 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 am I right in thinking it appears like that they'll that their influence in the Senate in, in the in the House of Representatives at the moment will in fact may in fact flip to being influence to being control of the Senate, right? Yes, that would be. Uh, so that would be a, a big piece of influence. I mean, the other thing is. A very slim uh, majority in the House um, for Republicans um, creates a scenario where, you know, hypothetically on certain pieces of legislation, um, you know, you might see a coalition that would form with some Democrats and, you know, maybe the majority of Republicans. There, you know, there's there's obviously a wide spectrum uh, in both parties, but you know, in the Republicans, there's there's a far right spectrum and there's slightly more moderate. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the party as a whole has gone pretty far right. But there are more moderate <clears throat> figures, and so you 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 could see a scenario where you could have some compromises. The bigger the majority the Republicans would have in the House, the less need they would have for it. But if they only have if they only control it by a few seats, um, you know that that becomes a possibility. Yeah, it's really interesting, Ben. From from our and, and I know this is a problem in the states, but it's also a problem watching it from afar. Is that it all comes down to Voldemort sitting in Mar-a-Lago, um, yeah. and we all wonder about him. And it, of course, it's he's now got. Uh, I'm trying to think of Voldemort's rival, but you know, I, I don't think um, yeah. DeSantis is Harry Potter, I'm afraid. But <clears throat> we've got this guy DeSantis, who's kind of a Trump light, but you know, certainly rather strident. What is what is this outcome where we've seen quite a few, with the possible exception, I guess, of J.D. Vance, we've seen quite a few people that um, uh, that Trump supported just not getting anywhere. Is is this is it too much to hope that this is the end of the Trump wave? I mean, I think it was a terrible night for, for Trump. And I mean, arguably, he was the biggest loser on election night. Uh, his brand is damaged. And DeSantis is riding high on a you know historic victory in Florida and looking as strong as, as he's ever looked. Um, now, you know, I will say Florida is not what Florida once was. Mm -hmm. Florida has been thought of as, you know, a, a purple state by which, you know, people mean, you know, a state where you have... Uh, Either either a mix of some Democrats in power, some some Republicans in power, or or really just a, a state that that would be considered like a swing state that would really be uh, up for grabs, where either side could make a credible argument for winning an election. Uh, Florida is not that right now. Uh, it could be again, but but right now it's not that. 
And it, it looks like at least for the next few elections, it probably won't be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it's not like you can necessarily generalize to DeSantis's success in Florida and say, well, he'd be able to do the same thing elsewhere um, because there are, you know, there are some differences in Florida and, and their, their state party in Florida is very strong. Yeah. Um, but, you know, certainly if you're Trump, I mean, you live in Florida now. Uh, yeah. and, and now the governor, the guy who you're going to see every day is your chief rival. Uh, we're already seeing the, uh, the beginnings of, of, you know, of a good the 2024 tiff. mania. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting that we, we have a politician in New Zealand who's just, um, been deposed as the head of her party, Judith Collins, who simply cannot hide how ghastly she is. And Trump is kind of reassuringly like that. His comments overnight about Ron DeSanctimonious and how he was going to expose DeSantis because he knew more about him than, than, than even his wife might know. You know, these are pretty nasty threats. And it's always quite fun in a way that, that Trump just cannot help but expose uh, his methods. You know, he, he, he sounded like a mafiosa. Right. Well, and, and I, it, it doesn't project strength necessarily, though. And that's and that's um, mm. and, and, you know, a lot can change, but it doesn't you know, that that's that's I think what people are picking up on. Um, you know, he was effective in dispatching rivals in the 2016 primary, um, but I don't think he sounded you might have said at times he sounded unhinged, but I don't think he sounded desperate. Um, and some of these insults have the whiff of desperation. And certainly, I mean, I, I mean, frankly, Rhonda Sanctimonious, I mean, who knows? Nick reasons but it doesn't seem to to fit in the same way i mean i you know one of the things i wonder is how many voters for him or anyone really understand what sanctimonious means i mean this mm. is not a yeah. very basic yeah. schoolyard insult um well especially since they've taken most of the books out of the florida school so everybody's going to be a moron <laughs> down there everybody will be florida man but bernard wants to ask you two a couple of questions yeah of course yeah but ben i'm curious about florida you're right yeah. it's gone from purple to red and uh, one thing I don't quite understand from afar is why um, Latino voters and mm -hmm. uh, apparently uh, quite a few sometimes young African-American and Asian voters seem to be going Republican when the conventional wisdom or whatever we used to call that stuff uh, is that um, uh, he would, uh, the, the Republicans would struggle with um, uh, d different ethnicities, but t tell us what's going on there. Yeah, no, it's a good point, and it's something that we've observed. And uh, you know, I think um, particularly Hispanic voters, Republicans in Florida, have really courted Hispanic voters. I think there's a few things at play. I mean, one, um, you know, Florida has a strong um, immigrant community from countries like uh, Cuba, from countries like Venezuela, um, countries that are run by um, by, you know, that have, that have been taken over by, by, you know, leftist, socialist, communist regimes. And there is a knee-jerk, there's a knee-jerk opposition to, to anything that smacks of socialism. Um, one of the things that's happened in recent years is, you know, there's been a lot of messaging on Democrats equals socialist. You didn't hear that actually quite as much this, uh, in this election, but, but certainly that was something in 2020 and in 2018 that we heard quite a lot of. And so I think that's something that has, um, calcified some of the support among uh, among Hispanic voters in Florida. Um, but, you know, I think there's also, you know, the sec there's, there is, there's a growing divide, I think, among people who are sort of second generation Hispanics uh, and first generation. And I think part of it is people who have, who grew up here, um, you know, increasingly their, their being Hispanic might not be their defining characteristic. 
uh, anymore. Uh, in the same way that, you know, a generation or two ago, being Italian-American or Irish-American was considered a very significant... Yeah, somebody with the name DeSantis, perhaps. Exactly. That or was Marco Rubio. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was considered a significant, you know, differentiator. And or Ted Cruz, other. the well-known exactly. Latino in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a differentiator. And I think, you know, for, for some Hispanic voters, for second-generation Hispanic voters, I think it's not the same. Mm, now, I will say, I will say that... Um, I don't know that you can necessarily, and this is something that I think DeSantis would like to, to, to convince people of, you can't necessarily extrapolate his success with Hispanic voters in Florida, which is real and significant to, to the rest of the country, because there are significant differences. I mean, for starters, you know, the Cuban population, you just don't have that in the same place anywhere else. And, and Cubans alone aren't enough to deliver a victory for DeSantis or any, for any Republican, um, but you do have that locked in base of support you know, that a certain portion of the Hispanic population is always going to vote Republican in Florida that you don't necessarily have elsewhere. So you're starting with like a pretty solid locked-in base. Ben, I'm, I'm curious, again, from afar, where Trump, we knew about, even at the bottom of the world, before he became the sure. uh, presidential candidate. But DeSantis um, doesn't appear to have that same national presence or impact. Obviously, a lot of people now know about him, but let's say, for example, let's play out, uh, let's say Trump um, fades and DeSantis becomes the presidential candidate for the Republicans. We've heard just in the last day or two that pretty likely now Biden is going to run again at the age of 82. Well, says he's uh, going to run, yeah. Yeah, to be a second term <clears throat> president. Uh, what are the polls uh, and what's the conventional wisdom about a Biden versus DeSantis matchup? Um, I think, you know, I think that, that, that uh, I think there's been more polling probably on, on, on DeSantis versus Trump. And I think, you know, there, you, you know, there've been some polls that suggest that, um, that DeSantis would have an advantage. Um, I think DeSantis, you know, the, I think the, I think there's been some polling that suggests that DeSantis and Biden would probably run sort of roughly even, I mean, sort mm -hmm. of similar. I mean, the margins obviously with, with Trump and Biden were, were roughly even when, when all the votes were counted. Uh, or at least at least electorally, uh, popular vote. Obviously, Biden uh, had a pretty significant lead. I, I don't think that people necessarily expect DeSantis would have a huge surge in support beyond that. I mean, it's important to note uh, because this is a unique peculiarity of the uh, the, the American electoral system that um, you know Republicans haven't won the popular vote for quite some time in the presidential election, and it's the electoral college which you know gives a proportional share to each state. Um, that kind of creates the dynamic we are in now. So yes, DeSantis, I think, you know, he would be a strong competitor to Biden. It would be, a, you know, an extremely close race. Um, I don't know that he goes in as the favorite in the same way that I don't think right now Trump goes in as being the favorite. Um, I think they both go in as strong candidates, but I do think, I mean, in the same way that, you know, you can't, you know, in the same way that, that certainly the pandemic impacted Trump's, uh, in Trump's results in 2020, you know, it sort of depends on where things are and what happens with the economy. If the economy gets worse in the U.S., then certainly I think Biden or, or Trump or whoever the Republican candidate is goes in probably as a favorite. Um, if the economy improves, you know, Biden might be looking pretty strong. Just on that economy uh, uh, thing, um, we care a lot about um, what's happening with U.S. interest rates because they set the base for our mortgage rates and uh 
I get a lot of fun getting up in the morning and looking at the US 10-year treasury yield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious about if there is a, it looks like there will be, a Republican control of the Congress and a very <laughs> tightly um, uh, divided Senate, uh, there's been some talk about the Republicans using the debt ceiling as a weapon mm -hmm. in a contest. And the conventional wisdom is that when you have a division in control between Congress and the presidency... The House of Representatives, but... Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that... <laughs> we've only got one chamber here. Yeah. Yeah. One minute. Uh, it's lucky, I suppose you've got two. But... Um, the idea is with the divide, division between the presidency and the House of Representatives yeah. hmm. that uh, it's very difficult to really ramp up a big budget deficit. And typically, when you have that division, um, uh, America runs smaller budget deficits and therefore slightly less pressure on interest rates. Uh, what's the view on, you know, are we going to have another debt ceiling debacle or are the Republicans going to try and avoid falling into the trap that they did under Clinton? I mean, I think that uh, with the current, I mean, it, it, it all depends on, on the margin of victory. Um, but I think you have a lot of, there is, I mean, there is a strong contingent in the House of Representatives um, in the Republican Party that is sort of a blow it all up kind of mentality. And so um, I, I foresee, you know, an endless number of, of debt ceiling fights, which are, you know, always yeah. are, you know, feel like, you know, a complete they're so waste exhausting, of aren't they? Right. They're a complete waste of everyone's time. Um, but, you know, it's a way to extract some concessions, uh, you know, for everyone involved. I mean, Democrats will extract some concessions, uh, you know, but but the far right members uh, of the co coalition will extract some concessions. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and so it, and, it, and it does have an impact. I mean, I think um, you know, I do. I do think you know one of the things that you might have seen, for example, if uh, if Republicans would have controlled both chambers, was an attempt to to you know to figure out a way to cut taxes more aggressively, um, which which you know may or may not have actually truly increased spending, but you know could have impacted uh, attempts at uh, at a recovery, particularly if if you know there were attempts to to further cut corporate tax rates or anything like that. I mean, obviously with 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 the divided chambers. You know anything like that is is far less likely to occur. Ben, I'm going to close with one question to you, and I, I, you, you, you're one of the finest uh, investigative journalists I, I know, and we you know we worked with a great bunch of people there at the CPI. Is is part of your job at the Miami Herald to investigate Trump himself? Absolutely, no, absolutely. I mean, to investigate Trump and and uh, you know DeSantis as well. Um, absolutely, um, you know he he was a. Uh, it, it, you know, I think I think investigative reporters did investigate Trump a little bit before the 2016 election, but not as much as they should have. Mm -hmm. uh, in part because I think you know he just wasn't taken seriously uh, until you know early enough. Um, but absolutely, and and frankly, I mean, as much as there's been some reporting about what's been happening in these last you know what three, two years since he's left office, I mean, this is an incredibly significant time. Mm. Uh, we see the deals that he's cutting with foreign leaders. Uh, you know, you think about the Gulf League he's involved in in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, there are, are tremendous potential conflicts in terms of the behavior he's had. And obviously he has this fight, you know, this ongoing fight over all these secret documents he uh, 
you know, claims yeah. he didn't accidentally remove from the White House. No, but he only he only thought about he he just thought about making them, uh, you know, making them making them uh, not not top secret anymore. Right, right, right. He waved his magic wand. <clears throat> um, but so so to me, I mean, you know, there was there was a sense um, while he was in office, there was a, a sense of this is a guy who has a, a global uh, business empire. Uh, he's not been shy about working with basically anyone who will mm. provide money in the past. You know, any number of, of his past business partners raised all sorts of red flags. Well, now he's been the former, you know, now he's the former president and, you know, likely to run again and potentially a future president. I mean, what he's been doing, the deals he's been making, the people he's been talking to, that all deserves tremendous scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and, and it's out in the open, I mean, you know. Yeah, no, the great thing is some of it's out in the open. Yeah. yeah. Ben, thank you so much. We'll let you go to bed. And I really appreciate this. And I'll, I will drop you an email and hear how you're doing. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks so much. Take care. This has been fun. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating. Bernard, ben is a terrific chat. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a really, really, truly excellent reporter. I think, I think the, the Miami Herald has done a remarkable job. McClatchy actually has done a remarkable job of sustaining its investigative journalism team in the US, you know, in, in the midst of a pretty serious journalism crisis. And without the Miami Herald, we wouldn't know about Jeffrey Epstein, for example. That's right. And um, <clears throat> uh, so should we, we segue to segue to Twitter, which is the Ah, yes. And I think we need to do FT, FTX as well. So we'll just do this reasonably quickly. But uh, Elon Musk has sent a week after taking control his first email to, to staff and essentially said bankruptcy is an option at Twitter. He's now lost the last three critical uh, executives at Twitter, including somebody I know called Yoel Roth, who was the, um, uh, the head of kind of uh, verification and uh, the misinformation team at Twitter. So we're looking at the contamination of the entire platform and the destruction, I think, really. I mean, I actually, you know, as you know, I'm, a, I'm not exactly a fanboy of Musk's, but I, I have huge admiration for him. But just in the last 24 hours, we've had fake Tesla accounts with the blue tick turning up on them, fake Canadian broadcasting accounts with the blue tick coming on, a fake Le LeBron James account. You know, this is really serious stuff. And uh, heaven help us if there's a fake Bernard Hickey or a Peter Bale account. That's right. That's right. I mean, there they might be. Mind you, they might be smarter than the real ones. In my case, yeah, at least. That's right. Or um, uh, even uh, an FTX one. Uh, this yeah. I know we don't talk about crypto much uh, here, but um, we have had a couple of crypto guests on in the past. We talk about cryptocrats, not cryptocrats. Sorry, we talk about kleptocrats like Putin, not cryptocrats like this exactly. guy. <laughs> yeah, now, and in the last couple of days, we've had FTX, one of the biggest crypto mm. exchanges, essentially collapse in the most awful heap as it's discovered that his boss, the, the boss of FTX, on the side, his um, trading firm had effectively borrowed money from customers' accounts without telling them and, and then was unable to pay it back when the customers came calling. Mm. A classic case of the bank manager um, using the money in the vault to uh, try to make yeah. money on his own and then not being able to put it back in the vault before. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a very dim view of cryptocurrencies, partly because I don't understand them. I mean, I do understand blockchain, but I, I don't understand the inherent value because there is no inherent value in, um, you know, other than scarcity and speculation in uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, but yes, this looks like a classic. Ponzi scheme. And people are talking about this, Bernard, as a 
as a, Levin, a, 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 a Lehman Brothers moment for the, for the crypto industry. But I wonder, could it not also have some really dangerous spillover for the real markets? Yeah, uh, even as recently as two or three years ago, the crypto um, industry was pretty much cordoned off from the real world in that you weren't seeing a lot of the big fund managers, hedge fund managers, banks being involved in it. And the actual business of fintech was usually associated with banking and payments, not necessarily mm -hmm. crypto. But that has changed in the last couple of years. And you've seen big names like you know, BlackRock and others, Sequoia, for example, who had to write off $210 million in uh, value from FTX just in the last day or so. You've got big names who've dabbled and yeah. decided that this might be the next big thing. So they were trying it out. And because there's so much leverage involved, there is a risk of contagion, particularly in some areas in the hedge fund and private equity sector, which aren't regulated. Unlike mm. the banks, where you've got a regulator crawling all over them all the yeah. time. These hedge funds and private equity funds, as we discovered during the Bank of England's crisis a few weeks ago, it's often these, what you suppose you'd call the shadow banking sector, mm. unregulated, uh, where things blow up. And because of some of the connections between now crypto and these shadow banks, that's a particular worry. Uh, and it's, uh, it was good news last night that the uh, inflation numbers out of the United States were so good and there was a huge rally on the stock market and on the bond market, which will have made a few nervous people um, a bit happier. But no, no doubt we'll see more out of this. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is going to make Theranos, you know, which was a fantastic fraud, um, look pretty small beer by comparison, isn't it? Yeah, and because the guy involved, um, David uh, Friedman, it became a sort of a celebrity crypto guy <laughs> who, unlike some of the more libertarian crypto uh, types, actually tried to engage with regulators yeah. and try to make it look respectable. <laughs> so there's a double whammy there in that it's not like he was a dodgy libertarian who suddenly was exposed as a dodgy libertarian. Mm. He was uh, someone who wanted to, to make crypto respectable, and it turns out he was just like all the others. Mm. And that's a problem. Um, it's uh, it's been a heck of a week. Uh, yeah. So we may have a couple of very. You know, if you if you meant so, like I say, I, I'm I'm not a fanboy of Musk's, but I incredibly admire SpaceX and Tesla. He's sold, I think, four billion dollars further of Tesla, having said he wouldn't be selling any further, and he's also ladled debt into into Twitter itself of thirteen billion dollars. Wow. There's, and there's a lot of people hanging off him as well. Larry Ellison, a few others. You know, there's some there's some quite serious potential rippling damage from this, not just the loss of that uh, global conversation. One of the lawyers from Twitter who quit today talked in a very good New York Times piece today or in a memo <clears throat> about some of the people who are on Twitter who are going to be damaged by this. And if you think about the dissidents who, you know, hide behind fake names and so on, the people who can't who work you know for whom it's an incredibly important outlet out of non-monetizable markets this is a this is going to be a tragedy the way things are going yeah and it makes you ask the question should i be investing my time or risking my reputation on twitter um, i've spent quite a bit of time since 2008 <clears throat> building up uh, an audience of um over 35,000 people who follow me on twitter that's actually the highest number for any political or economic journalist in New Zealand. Lord. Um, I don't want to brag. And oh, no, I do, Brett, because you, you so seldom do. You deserve to. Yeah. But, anyway. 
Um, and uh, it was a very useful way for, for me to reach a lot of people. And I'm sure a lot of the people who are subscribers and who are on this call may have stumbled across the work I do and, and others through Twitter. And it's interesting that um, I, I'm, I'm stepping back a little bit from using Twitter to promote a lot of the stuff that we do on the Kaka, um, in part because uh, the Kaka itself is looking to, uh, and, and Substack is looking to, you know, uh, adopt a non-algorithmic and safe place to have those sorts of chats that mm. we often have. On I'll see you over on Mastodon then. See you over on Mastodon. Yeah, I haven't quite gone that far. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a very good, if anybody wants it, there's a very, very good Lawfare, the, the Lawfare podcast mm. uh, this week was all about what is Mastodon and how does it work. Uh, very, very, very helpful indeed. We'll, we'll, we'll put up some links to that tomorrow. But, but we better do some skateboarding dogs because I've got three doozies this week. Oh, yeah. Go for it. So one of them is a very good Bloomberg story, which is that secondhand Rolex watch prices have collapsed this week as supply uh, outstrips demand. Which, which may have something to do with the other two stories we're talking about. And, I just and you... love some of, some of the fun things you can do with charts. So there is a very close correlation, or there has been, between the Rolex price and the Bitcoin price. Yeah, yeah. And the other one is Bitcoin and avocados. Oh, so I, had no, the... I had no idea of that. But as we know, correlation does not mean causality. No, exactly. You're right. Um, and uh, there's some fun charts which have effectively advanced the price of avocados six months. And there's a fairly good track. Yeah. Causality, well, not causality, correlation. Well, the other, the other skateboarding dog story is a, is, a, is a skateboarding octopus. It's a bloody marvellous story, which is that scientists in Australia have detected that female octopuses of the variety, the gloomy octopus, which is also occurs in New Zealand, have discovered that the females throw sand and mud in the faces of males that they don't want to mate with. Fair and this is, this is behavior that's only previously been seen in humans and chimpanzees or other mammals, apparently. Exactly. No, this is, this is um, good, good to see. Um, so the, the Shall we wrap up at, at, at on the top of the hour, unusually? Yes, that's, that's right. Um, thank you again, Peter. That was great uh, for arranging a truly global edition. Of yeah, well, I, I think David was really effective and I love David's pragmatism as well. He's, I think he's still on. He's, he's clearly not just a ranting activist. No, he, um, he won't be. He won't be throwing um, tomato tomato sauce over Colin McCann's I am anytime soon. No, and you sort of got to admire um, so many people who work in this area because if you thought about it a lot, you'd be pretty depressed every morning getting up and simply getting up and dealing with people who are trying to you know open up new coal mines and new oil. Um, uh, new oil wells and having to push back at them uh, every day, uh, knowing that every day that a new one is opened or another couple of million tons get pumped in, the chances of runaway climate change get worse. You sort of got to ad admire the stickability and the um, resilience and uh, sheer... Yeah, I do. I do. No, no. People people who, who make the commitment to those kinds of organisations and that kind of campaign are extraordinary. Now, the other, th the other person, I would encourage everybody to follow Ben Weeder, W-I-E-D-E-R on uh, Twitter. Ben is, 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 is that oxymoron and a, an intelligent journalist. <laughs> on that note, uh, Peter Bale, co-host of the Kaka and myself, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for being on the Hoon uh, this week. Uh, fantastic to see you all. 
Ka kite anō. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you, Bernard. Bye-bye. See you, everybody.